Well, good morning and welcome once again to another uh, installment of our church history series. Uh, we've been focusing on, uh, most recently, we've been focusing on developments in 20th century American church history. And, you know, we talked about Billy Graham and we talked about how Billy Graham had uh, befriended Martin Luther King Jr., or maybe it was the reverse. Martin Luther King Jr. maybe befriended Billy Graham. But anyway, they got connected, and uh, that was a very important connection um, uh, in the time period in the United States that we're going to be talking about. And of course, I think everybody in this room knows who Martin Luther King Jr. is. Is there anybody who doesn't? Now, we all know who he is. Interestingly, when we talked about Martin Luther, the German reformer from the 1500s, there were a lot of people who did not know who Martin Luther was. Uh, but now we're going to talk about Martin Luther King Jr. Here we are in 20th century America. And of course, um, he is uh, perhaps best known as the civil rights leader uh, for black Americans in the 20th century. Uh, there were many other leaders, many other pastors who led the fight for civil rights for American blacks, but Martin Luther King is surely the, the best known. He was born on January 15th. Um, let me go ahead and, yeah, oops. <clears throat> there we go. Uh, he was born January 15, 1929, in Atlanta, Georgia. He was the second of three children born to Michael King Sr. and Alberta King. Her married name was Williams, uh, or rather her maiden name was Williams. And he had an older sister, Christine King Ferris, and a younger brother, Alfred Daniel, or A.D. King. Uh, King's maternal grandfather was a Baptist minister. And King's father was the son of illiterate sharecroppers. So two very different families um, in terms of their circumstances at this time in the early 20th century. Uh, Michael King Sr. left the farm as a teenager and walked 20 miles to Atlanta, Georgia to obtain a high school education and then attended Morehouse College to study for the ministry. In 1931, after working his way through college, King Sr. became pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where his father-in-law had pastored. King Jr. was born during a time of great economic and social change for black Americans, but of course, this was also a time of continued frustrations and limitations for them. The formal and informal segregation laws known as Jim Crow throughout the southern U.S. were still in place. Segregation was also a way of life in many parts of northern states with fewer economic, social, and political opportunities for black Americans than for whites. And you can see here, this is a sign that would have been posted uh, in a public area. I think it was connected with uh, a railroad station um, everything was segregated in the South. Martin Luther King Jr. experienced these limitations as a child. 
King became friends with a white boy whose father owned a business across the street from his family's home. In September of 1935, when the boys were about six years old, they started school. King, of course, had to attend a black-only school, Young Street Elementary in Atlanta, but King's friend went to a whites-only school. And soon afterwards, the parents of the white boy stopped allowing King to play with their son, stating to him, we are white and you are colored. And this is a, a really nice photo of the King family home. It is still standing. And if you uh, take a vacation to Atlanta, if you take a trip there, there is a whole national park. Uh, I forget which portion of Atlanta it's in, but uh, it has the King family home, Ebenezer Baptist Church. It's, it's kind of like they took the neighborhood where the King family lived and where Martin Luther King Jr. worked uh, for many years, and they made it into a national park. Um, so you can tour the home. Uh, if you if you know if you're ever down there, uh, this house was originally built for a white family, but King's maternal grandfather, the Baptist pastor, purchased the home for thirty five hundred dollars in 1909. That was a bargain, <laughs> but of course back then that would have been a, a huge amount of money. Um, King told his parents about this situation with his white friend, and the. The parents had to have a long discussion with him about the history of slavery and racism in America. Upon learning of the hatred, violence, and oppression that blacks faced in the US, King would later state that he was determined to hate every white person. But his parents instructed him that it was his Christian duty to love everyone. Once, out walking with his father, they were stopped by a police officer who referred to King Sr. as boy. King's father responded sharply that King Jr. was a boy, but he, King Sr., was a man. At a shoe store in downtown Atlanta, the clerk told them they needed to sit in the back. King's father refused, stating, we'll either buy shoes sitting here or we won't buy any shoes at all, before taking King Jr. and leaving the store. And he told his son afterward, I don't care how long I have to live with this system, I will never accept it. And in 1936, King Sr. led hundreds of blacks in a civil rights march to the city hall in Atlanta to protest voting rights discrimination. King Jr. later remarked that King Sr. was a real father to him. And in this, he was very fortunate to have such a strong male influence in his life, caring for him in a very fatherly way. And of course, this example stayed with Martin Luther King Jr. his whole life. King Jr.'s favorite hymn to sing was, I want to be more and more like Jesus. He moved attendees with his singing. Not surprisingly, scripture was read and discussed frequently in the King household and King memorized and recited Bible verses from the age of five. As he grew older, King Jr. began to go to church events with his mother and sing hymns while she played the piano. This is Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, where King's, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s grandfather and father both pastored, and where he later pastored. 
And this is how it appeared in the 1960s. Ebenezer Baptist Church has expanded. If you were to go and visit it today, uh, you would see much larger and a more mo modern buildings around it. It's become part of the National Park in Atlanta. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's still going on. I mean, this, this church is so famous. Uh, I can't begin to tell you, it's so famous. King Sr.'s efforts, along with those of other black Christians to advance civil rights in Atlanta, resulted in the integration of elevators in office buildings, equal pay for black teachers, and desegregation of the city bus system in 1959. Efforts to end segregation and promote social change also resulted in the Great Migration. Millions of blacks left the predominantly agricultural southern U.S. and moved north and west in two waves, from 1910 to 1930, and then from 1941 to 1970, looking for jobs and opportunities in cities. King Jr.'s opportunities were much greater in the city of Atlanta than they would have been in the rural parts of Georgia from which his parents and grandparents came. He was very fortunate to get a good education. In September of 1940, at the age of 11, he was enrolled at the Atlanta University Laboratory School for the seventh grade. And because this was a laboratory school, a laboratory school is, um, you know, there have been different types of these all over the country in different places. But this is where the best teachers will go to try out new teaching methods. Um, and a lot of times they give students who attend them much more educational opportunities than they might get in a standard public school. And while there, King took violin and piano lessons and showed keen interest in history and English classes. He wanted to expand his vocabulary so he took up reading the dictionary. But the resentment against whites due to the racial humiliation that he, his family, and his neighbors often had to endure in the segregated South was a constant backdrop to his teenage years. In 1942, when King was 13 years old, he became the youngest assistant manager of a newspaper delivery station for the Atlanta Journal. That year, King skipped the ninth grade and was enrolled in Booker T. Washington High School, the only high school for black students in Atlanta. He maintained a B-plus average and joined the debate team. On April 13, 1944, in his junior year, King gave his first public speech during an oratorical contest sponsored by the Elks Club in Dublin, Georgia. In his speech, he stated, Black America still wears chains. The finest Negro is at the mercy of the meanest white man. Even winners of our highest honors face the class color bar. So th this was very outspoken at the time. King was selected as the winner of the contest, but on the bus ride home to Atlanta, he and his teacher were ordered by the driver to stand so that white passengers could sit down. The driver of the bus called King a very bad name. King initially refused to sit down, but complied after his teacher told him that he would be breaking the law if he did not follow the directions of the driver. And here you see pictured a typical sign that would have been in a bus or a train station. Again, 
Public transportation was completely segregated and it was illegal for blacks to sit in white sections. I don't think we can fully appreciate how difficult it would be to live in a society where you see these signs everywhere you go when you're out in public, everywhere. Restaurants were segregated. Um, businesses uh, that did uh, do business with blacks would often make them you know, enter through the, through the back door to the business. They couldn't come in through the front. It was endless, it was pervasive. As all the seats were occupied, he and his teacher were forced to stand on the rest of the drive back to Atlanta. And later King wrote of the incident saying, that night will never leave my memory. It was the angriest I have ever been in my life. On May 18, 1941, the death of King Jr.'s maternal grandmother due to a heart attack was a great blow to him and the whole family. And he struggled with her loss. His father explained to him that she had been called home to God. This is part of God's plan. It can't be changed. And of course, you know, it's hard for a child or a teenager to come to grips with the fact that everybody dies. Uh, but he was grappling with this, uh, you know, for him, a very new experience. <clears throat> but he was not sure that his parents could really know where his grandmother had gone. And while he had grown up in a Baptist home, uh, you know, attending church every Sunday, Baptist pastor, grandfather, Baptist uh, pastor, father, he was still skeptical of some of Christianity's claims, and especially so as he entered adolescence. And he began to question the literalist teachings preached at his father's church. At the age of 13, he denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus during Sunday school. He found himself unable to identify with the emotional displays during services uh, from church members. You know, so the black church is expressive. He, he couldn't relate to that. During King's junior year in high school, Morehouse College, an all-male historically black college that King's father and maternal grandfather had attended, began accepting high school juniors who had passed the school's entrance exam. So here's another fortunate break for, for uh, Martin Luther King Jr. to attend college. With World War II underway, many black college students had enlisted in the armed services, decreasing the number of students at Morehouse College. The university aimed to increase their student numbers by allowing high school juniors to apply. And in 1944, at the age of 15, King passed the entrance exam, and he was enrolled at Morehouse for the fall term. And here you see pictured Graves Hall at Morehouse College. Morehouse College is still going strong uh, in Atlanta. Um, you can go visit the campus. Again, if you're ever in the Atlanta area, uh, you can tour this, this part of the city. Um, this is how it was shown in 2016. The buildings, you know, had renovations and, and so forth, and it's been kept up very well. Uh, the, this college was opened in 1867 to train former slaves to be Protestant ministers and educators. 
In the summer before King started his freshman year at Morehouse, he boarded a train with a group of other Morehouse college students to work in Simsbury, Connecticut at the tobacco farm of Coleman Brothers Tobacco, a cigar business. This was King's first trip outside of the segregated South into the integrated North. Now, when I say integrated North, again, keep in mind, some places in the North were more integrated than others. Um, some blacks still found discrimination in uh, parts of the Northern US. But this particular area seemed to be uh, just very well integrated. Uh, so King wrote his father in June of 1944 and said, on our way here, we saw some things I had never anticipated to see. After we passed Washington, he means Washington, DC, there was no discrimination at all. The white people here are very nice. We go to any place we want to and sit anywhere we want to. The students worked at the Coleman farm to earn money for Morehouse. The farm had partnered with the college to allot their earnings towards the college's tuition, housing, and other fees. King and the other students worked in the fields Monday through Friday, picking tobacco from 7 a.m. till at least 5 p.m., enduring temperatures above 100 degrees Fahrenheit to earn about $4 a day. But this was very typical for agricultural work at this time in the United States. You know, you might look at this and go, this is horrible. But it was very typical in 1944. Uh, on Friday evenings, King and the other students visited downtown Simsbury to get milkshakes and watch movies. On Saturdays, they would travel to Hartford to see theater performances, shop, and eat in restaurants. On Sunday, they went to church. Churches filled with white congregants, no discrimination. King wrote to his parents about the lack of segregation in Connecticut, relaying how he was amazed they could go to one of the finest restaurants in Hartford and that Negroes and whites go to the same church. The summer before his last year at Morehouse in 47, King, who was 18 years old at the time, chose to enter the ministry. Throughout his time in college, King studied under the mentorship of Morehouse's president, Baptist minister Benjamin Mays, uh, who King would later credit with being his spiritual mentor. King had concluded that the church offered the most assuring way to answer an inner urge to serve humanity. This inner urge had begun developing, and he made peace with the Baptist church as he believed he would be a rational minister with sermons that were a respectful force for ideas, even social protest. Now the fact is, King was essentially going down the path that, uh, frankly, many uh, Protestant ministers and pastors had gone down due to higher criticism. Uh, hopefully you will recall when we talked about higher criticism uh, coming out of the Enlightenment in Europe in the 1700s, the idea that, you know, well, Christianity is a good thing, but the supernatural elements of Christianity don't really, you know, this stuff really didn't, it's not really true. You know, was Jesus born of a virgin? No. Did he really rise from the dead? No. 
Was there a historical Jesus, a man named Jesus who was a good teacher, uh, you know, in the first century in, in Palestine under Roman occupation? Yes. Yes, such a person existed. And his teachings, his moral teachings are so excellent. And we as Christians can follow those moral teachings, but we're going to leave out the supernatural aspects of Christianity um, because higher criticism, you know, deconstructing the texts of the Bible has shown us that, you know, all these supernatural things that are described in the Bible, those really didn't happen. It's basically myth. So he ended up, and we'll see this as we talk about his later education, he was very much, uh, his thinking, I would say, was very much in tune with liberal Protestant uh, ministers at that time who had basically embraced higher criticism and had a whole different approach to Christianity so that Christianity is not uh, filled with the supernatural power of God to change people, to convert them, to heal the sick, uh, to cast out demons. These supernatural things, it's just really myth. Um, and we're just going to focus on being rational. You know, So this idea that he wanted to be a rational minister. In other words, he's going to leave behind what he believes are the mythical elements of Christianity and focus on Christianity almost as a philosophy, uh, a set of moral teachings by which we should live. King graduated from Morehouse with a Bachelor of Arts, a BA, in sociology in 1948, age 19. Now, I'll tell you, a sociology degree would really mesh very well with a rational approach to Christianity. Uh, and to continue his preparation, he attended Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania and took classes at the University of Pennsylvania. And he graduated with a Bachelor of Divinity in 1951, and then he began doctoral studies in systematic theology at Boston University. Now, in Boston, there were a lot, a lot of uh, very liberal Protestant ministers. Um, churches in New England had really, these congregational churches had really embraced, you know, or at least their leaders, <laughs> truly embraced higher criticism, uh, deconstructing biblical texts, and, you know, had a great emphasis on the moral teachings of Christianity. So he, he's in a part of the country where Christians are very much steeped in this way of thinking, and he ended up embracing it. Uh, at, this, at the time that he was attending Boston University, <clears throat> he also served as an assistant minister at Boston's historic 12th Baptist Church with William Hunter Hester, an old friend of his father. At the age of 25 in 1954, he was called as pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. King received his PhD on June 5, 1955 with a dissertation titled, A Comparison of the Conceptions of God in the Thinking of Paul Tillich and Henry Nelson Wyman. Um, and so again, these are people, Paul Tillich and Wyman, uh, these are people who are basically in that whole higher criticism school of thought. 
Now, while studying at Boston University, he had met Coretta Scott. She was a student at the New England Conservatory of Music. After the second date, King was certain Scott possessed the qualities he sought in a wife. So he had, you know, I, I have to say he planned his, his um, career very well. He, had, he, he was determined to finish his doctorate before he got married. In other words, he was going to be set vocationally before he got married and started a family. He was intentional about that. He was very fortunate to have met Coretta Scott. She had attended Antioch College right up the road in Yellow Springs, Ohio, where she had joined the NAACP and was politically active. So she was on the same wavelength as he was about the need for change in the United States, improving uh, lives for black citizens um, and bringing about true attainment of civil rights for blacks. Now, despite envisioning a career for herself in the music industry, Coretta knew that it would not be possible if she were to marry King. But since King possessed many of the qualities she liked in a man, she found herself becoming more involved with each passing moment. And when asked by her sister what made King so appealing to her, she responded, I suppose it's because Martin reminds me so much of our father. Her father was a pastor and... She's going to marry a pastor, and she knows what kind of a life she's going to be living. At that moment, Scott's sister knew King was the one. Now, here's a picture of the King family in the mid-1960s. The Kings had four children, um, and those children went on as they grew up to be very active in the civil rights movement. Some of them are still alive today, um, and... You know, you could, they've written books, they're very active. Um, you can read about them on the internet. And here is a photograph of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, still standing, still functioning church. And this was where King served as pastor while finishing his doctorate. Coretta and Martin were married on June 18, 1953 on the lawn of her parents' house in her hometown of Heiberger, Alabama. They be began their married life in the midst of a growing movement to desegregate the southern U.S. Throughout southern cities, blacks began to stage protests, sit-ins, and boycotts, and began to demand civil rights and an end to segregation. In March 1955, Claudette Colvin, a 15-year-old black schoolgirl in Montgomery, refused to give up her bus seat to a white man in violation of Jim Crow laws. And here's a photograph of Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks in 1955. Rosa Parks, as you may know, did the same thing on December 1st, 1955. She refused to give up her seat on a city bus uh, where she was sitting towards the front of the bus and she was arrested. Black ministers of churches in Montgomery asked Martin Luther King Jr. to lead a black community boycott of the entire city bus system. Now, what, what they were calling for was pretty radical. Uh, the boycott lasted for 385 days, more than a year. The city made carpools illegal, so many black workers were forced to walk everywhere. And 
of course, many, many black citizens of that city lived in parts of town uh, where there were no businesses. They, they were living kind of on the outskirts. And to go to their work every day, they had to walk from, you know, what was almost being out in the country into town. They had to walk miles and miles. But they did it, all of them. And they did it for a very long time. They were determined. King's house was bombed. He was arrested for traveling 30 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone and jailed. But this drew the attention of the national media. Again, this is the mid 50s. People are starting to get televisions in their home. More and more average Americans are getting televisions. And so now they're able to watch the civil rights movement unfold in real time. Every night on the evening news, you know, a lot of us today don't, you know, we're like, what's the evening news? <laughs> Greg and I still watch that because we grew up during this time and our parents and, and everybody we knew watched the evening news. And, you know, there would be journalists and, and you know, photographers and, and people with, you know, movie cameras down in the South filming these events. So this was shown on TV almost on a daily basis. So the controversy regarding this bus boycott ended when the US District Court issued a ruling in Browder v. Gale that prohibited racial segregation on all Montgomery, Alabama public buses. And blacks resumed riding the buses again and were able to sit in the front with full legal authorization. King's role in the bus boycott transformed him into a national figure, the best known spokesman of the civil rights movement. In 1957, King, Ralph Abernathy, Fred Shuttlesworth, Joseph Lowry, and those names may not be super familiar to you, but they were active leaders at this time, active black leaders. Other civil rights activists along with them, both white and black, founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. The group was created to harness the moral authority and organizing power of black churches to conduct nonviolent protests in the service of civil rights reform. The group was inspired by the crusades of evangelist Billy Graham, who befriended King, as well as the national organizing of the group In Friendship, uh, whites and blacks who grouped together to provide financial support for the movement. Many of the civil rights leaders were, were jailed, um, and jail was not a safe place. And so they had to raise funds to bail these folks out of jail, because who knows what would have happened to them in jail. Martin Luther King Jr. and other black and white ministers and leaders formed the Gandhi Society in 1962. Martin Luther King Jr. studied the work of Mohandas Gandhi, the famous Indian, um, basically, leader. Uh, he was many things, but I'll, I'll just say he was a leader who helped India gain independence and throw off British rule. And his policies of nonviolent protests uh, were what led India to independence. And Martin Luther King Jr. said, this is the model we need to follow. Along with that, he took the, uh, the teachings uh, from the New Testament. Uh, you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is telling people to turn the other cheek, 
to uh, love those who hate you, to don't lash back when people are attacking you, um, to love your enemies. Uh, you know, these, these ideas combined with uh, the ideas of nonviolent protest that he had seen Gandhi used really helped him solidify his vision for what this movement should be. And, and the goal of the Gandhi Society was to form a new society dedicated to progress through nonviolence, as he stated in a speech in Washington, D.C. Martin Luther King Jr. was becoming displeased with the pace that President John F. Kennedy was using to address the issue of segregation at the federal level. I mean, think of it, one city at a time to, to segregate, or desegregate rather, the buses. Look at the effort it took in just one city. The fact was the federal government needed to step in and it wasn't doing so. Because the fact of the matter is Jim Crow laws, the segregation laws, were totally unconstitutional, completely unconstitutional. So Martin Luther King Jr. and the Gandhi Society produced a document that called on President John F. Kennedy to follow in the steps of Abraham Lincoln and issue an executive order to deliver a blow for civil rights as a kind of second emancipation proclamation. But Kennedy did not execute the order. Kennedy was concerned that public allegations of communists in the SCLC would derail the federal civil rights initiative. This is the 50s. The Red Scare is in full sway. Okay, if you don't know what the Red Scare is, you should study this. During the 1950s, many, many people, especially the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, were very concerned about communists uh, who were in, in the federal government, in state governments, in movements like uh, Martin Luther King's uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the NAACP, all these organizations. Uh, Hoover and the FBI were, you know, searching for trying to ferret out communists. And Hoover was convinced that King was a communist and tapped his phones and he was followed and, you know, he was basically harassed by the FBI. And the FBI was harassing a lot of other people at this time. And the, um, there were, um, there was Senator Joseph P. McCarthy who was uh, ferreting out communists in Hollywood and dragging people before his uh, Senate hearings and asking them if they were members of the Communist Party. And do you know any other members of the Communist Party who are working in Hollywood? He went after this particular industry. So all of this, you know, fear of communism is enveloping the United States. At the same time, the civil rights movement is really trying to, uh, to gain ground. Kennedy warned King to discontinue associations with uh, communists. Um, and uh, Kennedy later ended up issuing a written, the written directive that authorized the FBI to wiretap King and other SCLC leaders. But King believed that organized nonviolent protest of the system of Southern segregation known as Jim Crow would lead to extensive media coverage of the struggle for black equality and voting rights. And of course, he was right. 
<clears throat> now here you see a picture of striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee in 1968. Um, basically, they're garbage collectors. Most garbage collectors in Memphis at this time were black. Um, they uh, received lower pay for doing the same type of work as their white counterparts. Uh, they were discriminated against in many, many ways. They're all holding signs that say, I am a man. Um, and later, uh, the, well, we're going to get back to this uh, particular strike. We're going to get back to Memphis in 68. Um, but this is just one picture out of thousands and thousands of all the protests that were going on, the boycotts, the strikes. And I, I, I would also say that labor unions were getting very involved with the civil rights movement. One time King was jailed and the person who bailed him out was the head of, I think it was the UAW, United Auto Workers. Uh, so the unions were very much involved with this and they saw that they needed to promote civil rights within their ranks. Media ac accounts in newspapers and televised footage of the daily deprivation and indignities suffered by Southern blacks and segregationist violence and harassment of civil rights workers and marchers convinced many Americans that the civil rights movement was the most important issue in American politics in the early 1960s. Again, this is on the news every night. Now, I'll also mention, along with that, they're televising the Vietnam War. So this is, this is truly a time of radical change in American life in terms of what people are seeing that is going on in the world that they wouldn't have known about in, for earlier generations. In December of 59, after being based in Montgomery for five years, King announced his return to Atlanta at the request of the SCLC and he served as co-pastor with his father at the Ebenezer Baptist Church until his death. When he came back to Atlanta, Georgia Governor Ernest Vandiver, uh, white of course, expressed open hostility toward King's return to his hometown in late 59. He claimed that wherever Martin Luther King Jr. has been, there has followed in his wake a wave of crimes and vowed to keep King under surveillance. So not only has he got the feds on his case, uh, you know, he's got local law enforcement on his case. Keep in mind that Southern local law enforcement is filled with KKK members. Let that sink in. By April 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was back in Alabama for protests in Birmingham. Again, he was arrested and jailed early in the campaign. At this time, this was his 13th arrest out of 29 total arrests in his life. From his cell, he composed the now famous letter from Birmingham jail that responds to calls on the movement to pursue legal channels for social change. And this letter has been described as one of the most important historical documents penned by a modern political prisoner. In the letter, he wrote his famous saying, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere.
declare, um, sorry, I guess I duplicated a slide here. Declaring that black Americans had waited for their God-given and constitutional rights long enough, King quoted one of our distinguished jurists, probably referring to English jurist William Gladstone, that justice too long delayed is justice denied. And this is a central tenant of the American legal system. Uh, and for example, when you hear about people, ex people who've been arrested for crimes and they want to exercise their right for a speedy trial, um, that right to have a speedy trial comes out of this idea that justice cannot be delayed, otherwise it is injustice. Uh, so, and this is a fundamental tenet of both English and American uh, law. <clears throat> King, representing the, the SCLC, was among the leaders of the big six civil rights organizations, NAACP and others, who were instrumental in the organization of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which took place on August 28, 1963. And here's a photograph of Martin Luther King Jr. delivering his I Have a Dream speech. Uh, in the March on Washington, D.C. in 1963. He gave this speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial, facing out over the reflecting pool that, um, and on the internet you can find many, many photographs. You can, you can find film footage taken this day, uh, on this uh, event. Millions of people were in attendance. And this is just a portion of the speech. I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. On March 29th of 1968, King went to Memphis, Tennessee in support of the black sanitation, uh, public sanitation works employees on strike since March 12th for higher wages and better treatment. On April 3rd, King addressed a rally and delivered his I've been to the mountaintop address at Mason Temple, the world headquarters of the Church of God in Christ. King was fatally shot by James Earl Ray at 6.01 p.m. Thursday, April 4th, 1968, as he stood on the Lorraine Motel second floor balcony. The city of Memphis quickly settled the strike on terms favorable to the sanitation workers. But the country exploded. There were riots in major cities throughout the United States. 
And here is a picture of the Lorraine Motel. <clears throat> it is now the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. And here is an excerpt from his speech. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So that concludes what I have to share about Martin Luther King Jr. There is so much more to know about his story. And when you think you've learned all there is to know, you find there's more. He did so much in his relatively brief career. Uh, he would be in his 90s if he was alive today. Um, and these are just a few uh, sources. Um, in addition to the sources listed here, um, <clears throat> he wrote his autobiography, and you can read that. Um, and the, uh, the work that's cited here by David Garrow, Martin Luther King, an American Legacy, Bearing the Cross, Protest at Selma, the FBI, and Martin Luther King Jr. That's actually three books that now have been kind of combined into one gigantic book. And that is considered the definitive work on Martin Luther King Jr. in addition to his autobiography. Um, I recently ordered the book Bearing the Cross. Hopefully I can get through it because I have a ton of stuff to read <laughs> and time is short. Uh, any questions or comments? Connor. Um, I don't think so. I, I think he continued in his, what we would probably term liberal Protestant view of the Bible and of Christianity. I, I think he was so focused on uh, the work he was doing in the civil rights movement that I, I guess in a way it didn't matter to him. What mattered was the teachings of Christ that we can rely on and the idea of nonviolent protest can change a whole society. You know, he just didn't want to see, uh, you know, what happened after his death. I mean, you know, in 1968, um, I can remember sitting in front of a TV set looking at all of this and thinking, what's happening to America? Not long after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated while he was campaigning for president. Um, you know, prior to all of this, of course, was the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 63. You know, the Vietnam War is just getting worse and worse all the time. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was a huge time of change in this country. But for Martin Luther King Jr., I think he was probably so focused. And I mean, you know, he is, he's getting jailed all the time. You know, uh, 
the police are harassing him. Other, you know, civil authorities are harassing him constantly. You know, uh, not only was his house bombed, he was stabbed. He was at a book signing, and a woman, it, ha it happened to be a black woman who was just mentally deranged, she came up and stabbed him in his chest. She was very, and it almost, it almost went through his heart. Um, he was rushed to the hospital. They performed surgery. They saved his life. Um, you know, his life is on the line. And the life of his family, too, was on the line every day. So I think when you're doing that kind of work, you know, um, I certainly would have liked if he had found real faith in, in Christ in terms of Christ being resurrected. That is so central to the Christian faith. And again, we don't know, you know, you can read the works of someone, but again, to know what's really going on inside that person, only God knows. So I, I didn't see any evidence that he had changed his viewpoint regarding Christianity. Anyone else? Greg? Very hard time. Yep. Yeah, and some people have speculated that um, uh, the man who assassinated King was actually part of a conspiracy. And just like JFK's death, you know, there have been investigations, you know, was this man truly just acting alone? But of course, the truth was, any white supremacist would have been happy to take him out at any time. So it wouldn't have taken a conspiracy, you know. <laughs> um, you know he was assailed on every front. His life was always in jeopardy every day. Well, um, we'll break here so you can uh, take a break, get, get some coffee uh, before the next meeting. <laughs>